Okay. So what's... I don't know about that last one. <laughs> that last one was a little off, homie. We should be good, though. What's uh, good, homie? I mean, who would have thought that we'd be trying to clap together in two different cities? Clap in the name of love. Clap in the name of love, is, you know what I mean? Is it still appropriate to say that? I don't know. I don't know if we can clap in the name of love anymore. But I guess it's better than the other types of clapping. That's for sure. That's been going on recently. Way too much clapping going on. Uh, I mean, that gets us actually right into that Dave Chappelle. Did you get the chance to check it out? Oh, I watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eight minutes. I actually was driving home. I was driving home from uh, lunch, and I was listening to uh, NPR. They had uh, BBC News Hour on. They were talking about our boy Dave. They said it was not a comedy special at all. They said he just ranted about the police for 18 minutes straight. And that was after seven minutes of him not saying anything. That's what they said. They, they, so, they took it that hard? They came out of yeah, that hard? They really they didn't like it. They did not like that one bit. I thought your boy was speaking truth in the best, the best mold of the African-American comedian. He was being prophetic. I feel like he was giving us, a, what do you call it, the fire next time, a little James Baldwin for our moment. I think Dave was like, I think y'all forgot who the fuck I was because I disappeared for ten years. Did you? But I never liked these. I never liked these motherfuckers. Did you like? And if y'all need to hear from me, y'all know what I think. I don't know why everyone thinks I have some sort of confusing position on the police. Chappelle's like, I've been pretty clear about that. From the did you like how he brought up your boy, your hometown boy, Don Lemon? Oh yeah. Well, Don Lemon, I'll be out there doing his thing. You know, Don Lemon's been getting wild lately. I feel like Don Lemon's been really feeling himself in the age of Trump. Is he from New Orleans? Yeah, he's a New Orleans boy, I think. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) You're like, I never see them. (laughs) I don't know anybody that knows that boy. (laughs) But you you didn't know our other boy either. Mm, What's him call? Who? The one whose rap album I just made you listen to. Yeah, he's like 55. How am I supposed to know him? (laughs) 55-year-old rapper. I'm supposed to know this guy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Well, what is his name anymore? What kind of circle? See, you don't even know his name. <laughs> and I was like talking about how he was the great truth, the future. Yeah, because future of Jay Z used his name. Jay Z used his name to put out that. Remember, it was like this, like progressive mm. black power, but not really that black power. Was still kind of being more like neoliberal Jay Z doing his thing. Well, Jay Z was trying to use Jay Electronica to legitimate his um his NFL play. I think the whole album was a way of Jay Z to be like, look, I'm down with the black Muslims, so don't worry about how. I sold your boy Kaepernick out to the NFL. Yeah, and I think he saw, he was like, look, there's a market here with the black Muslims. Clearly it's growing. You know, there's you know increasing presence in the community. For some reason, I haven't made anything facing them. I need to get in on this fucking, I need to get the bag. They seem to be doing all right over there. I feel like Jay-Z's, you know? <laughs> I feel like Jay-Z was having a Dave Chappelle type moment. Because you saw Dave put that thing out on YouTube, right? I mean, suppose there's a Netflix special, but it was released on YouTube. Yeah, I guess they went general. I'm surprised they didn't also put it on Netflix, though. I went to look for it. Me, too. That's where I went to look for it first. I was like, am I banned? Is this not for black people? What is going on here? (laughs) Am I going to wait? But sometimes I guess you just got to tell truths, right? And I feel like Jay-Z wants to tell that truth, right? Which is that he's not a chitlin-eating, bacon-eating, collard green stuffing slave. Because people were thinking that he was a slave again when he got himself back on the Goodell plantation. Yeah, I mean, was that what they were saying? Some people in the community were suggesting that Jay-Z might have sold out. <laughs> I, I 
always thought that Jay-Z had a bigger plan, you know what I mean? A successful black capitalist. I was like, Jay-Z was always sold out. Jay-Z is a crack dealer. That's the most capitalist fucking thing you can be. Are you kidding me? I think Jay-Z gives a fuck. So, I mean, eh. Good for him. Isn't that what we always say about my boy Soros? You know what I mean? Jay-Z's in the best of their tradition, right? Which, like, I see an opportunity, a discrepancy. I told you the crack is bad for you. But if you still want to buy the crack, I mean, what am I supposed to do? I didn't say I had a problem with Jay-Z. I'm just saying I think he's known who he was for a very long time. I don't think he's too confused about his own self-identity. I'm definitely not trying to criticize Jay. Jay's a billionaire. <laughs> Jay's been doing something. Uh, Shit, white people love white people love Jay-Z. That's, love the, Jay-Z. that's the best part about someone like Jay-Z. They love him. Absolutely love him. Love him because he plays by the rules. You know what I mean? He's playing the game. He understood it. He's a very good ball player. Mm. Like, very good. Everyone likes a good ball. I thought that was the best line in that in that uh, Chappelle thing where he was like, "And who the hell does Laura Ingram think she is to say to my boy James, uh, shut up and dribble?" And I feel like he, I feel like he just got mad because he was like, he basically made that special to tell Don Lemon to keep his name out of his mouth. Oh, basically, and yeah, him and everyone else. <laughs> Look, you can just criticize LeBron for sometimes being wrong. Like, he was, he said some stupid shit in regards to China, right, in Hong Kong. Sometimes he's off. Sometimes we're all off. But at least he's willing to take a chance and put his ideas out there. You know, he's, he's like, I don't think anyone thinks LeBron's a bad guy. No, I mean, LeBron right? is clearly a good guy. But, I mean, who isn't wrong sometimes, right? Like, we don't talk about LeBron. I mean, we think it's okay if, like, the former head of Goldman Sachs comes out and is like, I think we should all do business with China. And then later, you know, comes about and it's like, oh, maybe I made a mistake. But why can't LeBron make, say something like that? I mean, he also has business to be done in China. That's because LeBron's supposed to be eating fried chicken and dribbling basketballs. <laughs> so that's why he's supposed to be talking about China. You're saying LeBron doesn't have the right to worry about his licensing fees? I don't think so. He might- I think that's supposed to be for attorneys. That's not, that's not supposed to be LeBron's. He's supposed to just look uh, pretty. We'll just say pretty. And, uh, and score a lot of basketball. Well, do we want people... I mean, Chappelle brings up a good point. Do we want um, celebrities to be saying things? Like, like, are we waiting for Drake to give us a comprehensive statement on George Floyd? I've been noticing, I've been, I've been, what do you call it, lurking on Drake's Instagram lately, and I've seen that even he feels the pressure to make some comments now about what CNN is saying. And, you know, he had to come out and say we want the police officers to be sentenced for a long time. But, like, is that his... You know, one of the big knocks on somebody like Drake is that he's not a po- explicitly political artist. And do we want, like, our Drakes to feel... Like, do we want Rihanna to start telling us um, the meaning of Black Lives Matter? And do we want Drake to try to explain to us, like, the state of American politics? Is that his duty as a black artist, successful black artist? Or is it okay to make, like, a little bit of... A few dance tracks out here? I mean, I, I don't know if I want to even hear another Drake, Drake dance track, much less his opinion on politics right now. But, I mean, it's a valid question. I think for the first time in a long time, we've actually seen most celebrities stand down on this movement, right? This is part of one of the things that have kind of made this like a legitimate movement. Shit, the only real celebrity I saw in the streets, to be honest, was Jane Fonda, right? Who's like always been down for the cause. Frankly. Yeah, but Jane Fonda Jane's is, always been is down. a certified gangster, you know what I mean? She's like... I mean, I think Jane Fonda's like one of the only white Black Panthers. Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like I'm not just joking. I'm dead don't they serious. call her Hanoi Jane? Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like she's like ready for Freddie. You know what I mean? 
She came out dressed in all black with that beret on. I was like, oh. We saw your boy Mitt Romney out there, though, marching with the Evangelical Black Lives Matter Brigade. You know, that's my boy. (laughs) Mitt's all right, man. Maybe had Mitt been president, we wouldn't have to. We wouldn't be worrying about any of this right now. Well, that's what my plug in the White House told me. He was like, if Mitt had just won, we wouldn't have had to give you guys this Trump thing. <laughs> <laughs> I like how they all liked him. That's one of the funniest things I got to say about Trump is this uh, collective mismemory about how much they all did not want him, right? And now that now that he's there and he has, they have no other choice, they're like, oh, we love him. Oh, man, we gave you Trump. You didn't give a shit, man. You guys thought you were going to lose. Trump bullied all of you guys and took this shit. And you better watch out. Who knows what's going to happen if, if this plays out the way he wants. I mean, I think a few of my boys... I think we, I think that's a narrative we want to tell ourselves. But a few of my boys out there, I think for a long time, they've been telling me some crazy stuff about Overton windows, moving the needle, uh, asymmetric warfare... I mean, this is my boy who told me the first time about cultural Marxism. He was like, you know, the liberals have been waging war on the campuses, trying to control young minds. We must develop similar techniques. And so I think for some people, Trump was the perfect avatar, right? He was the perfect vehicle uh, to give it one last shot. Well, he was definitely like the savior of the suburban warriors, right? Mm. They've they've been they've been trying to you know change our society since shit the fifties right <laughs> basically ever, ever since there was real inklings of any sort of true integration before the even the real laws got passed to make sure that didn't get too far um, and now we're starting to see the fruits of their labor and it's I mean frankly they're much more organized I think that's the the main takeaway currently is that they've been far more organized and direct about what they want. And changing society. And, and we're, we're not going to even realize what happened for 10, 20, 30 years. Well, I mean, you've been telling me about this handmaiden project for some time. I was like, nah, Elton, they're not going to take it that far. But before we go too far, I think we should, um, we should tell them what our name is, right? I mean, introduce them to the pod. Oh, yeah. Hello, everyone. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, nice to meet you. I'm Alton Torregato. Do what I do. I'm Alden Young. I'm out here and um, calling in from Northern Virginia, but we're two New Orleans boys. Do I still qualify yeah, as a New Orleans our... boy? Yeah, you always be New Orleans. <laughs> uh, this is our pod. I think we're going to try to run this um, with you guys at least until November. If, if Don Lemon can claim New Orleans, you're definitely New Orleans. I'll say that one. <laughs> Me, you, Don Lemon, and Jay Electronica. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a hell of a crew right there. <laughs> uh, and what are we calling it? Ah, so guess what I had for lunch? You'll enjoy this. I had a fried chicken sandwich. Dead serious. <laughs> <laughs> With coleslaw and some... Uh, it was pretty cool. It was like it was like boat cut crinkle fries. It was very good. Boat cut crinkle fries. Yeah. So I mean, I always knew you were a fried chicken kind of dude. You know what I mean? But we had to talk about that, like some of these uh, respectabilities out here, because you know, I, when I was working in New Orleans politics back in the day in the early two thousands, I think two thousand two to be exact, 
Um, my godfather told me that there's only two types of things you need to know about black politics. You got to be able to walk into a room and decide, is this a, is this a fried chicken room or is this a big chicken house? And I think part of the reason we decided to do this pod, right, is because me and you, we've been having some um, disagreements about the Democratic primary election. I mean, we knew you were a fried chicken dude, and, you know, I might still get a little nervous sometimes and be more of a big chicken kind of guy. So that's why we're calling this, what What are we calling this? Deep fried and half baked? Yeah, or maybe half baked, deep fried. Half baked and deep fried, you know what I mean? <laughs> because <laughs> I think that's the, the truth of the matter is we're both a little bit of both that's what we find that we agree on more things than we think we than we than it seems that we do initially um, but we also disagree on some pretty important things there's some deeper disagreements in the black community and bus, especially amongst black professionals um, than people realize it's, it's not at all a monolithic group and the beliefs are not at all monolithic so I think there needs to be a space for us to discuss these differences and how we got there but you know come up with some real solutions you know and have some fun yeah and have some fun I mean I think that's I think that's what's made it much more complicated so for someone like my godfather was a congressman I think it was much easier to walk into a room and to be like look mm, the country people the more um, less bougie people are going to eat the fried chicken and then the bougie people are going to eat the baked chicken you know and you get that baked chicken with no sauce on it it was always chicken breast. I mean, growing up in my household, we only ate chicken breast. I didn't even know about this whole thigh thing. But I think that's... I never I never had fried... I, I don't even know if my mom knows how to make fried chicken. Oh, my mom, I think, maybe knew, but she told me that's why she left South Carolina. So we never had to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but every once in a while, my dad would bring home some Popeyes. You know what I'm saying? And you chow down on the Popeyes, and everyone likes fried chicken. That's the real bottom line is everyone likes fried chicken, but baked chicken's also great. I'll never forget how excited my mom got when she learned that she could pay for an expensive service to come to the house to make chitlins and take the smell out at the same time. I mean, I'm not saying we ever did that, but the idea that she could do that in her house in Detroit was something that... You know, deluxe. deluxe. That's that's deluxe. <laughs> deluxe. Because she would tell me that my my uh, my grand aunt Aunt Elma would come down from New York because you know she couldn't make chitlin in her New York apartment up in Harlem, and so she would come down to know, South whole, Carolina. The whole fucking floor gets <laughs> mad at you, man. You get yeah, <laughs> beat down your door doing that crazy shit. Yeah, so she shit. would yeah, come down to South Carolina and make that stuff. And so I want air it out. Yeah, I would air it out. I mean, my mom was like, we we left South Carolina, so we're never gonna do that again. But Mm, but I think a little part of her still wanted to eat some chitlins sometimes. But I think our generation doesn't feel those same kind of hang-ups. I don't know if you would agree with me. And now we're kind of like, we can have the wasabi chitlins. Yeah, I mean, I eat everything, right? Like, it's, it's weird. My parents, like, won't eat, like, the old generation won't eat random stuff. They're like, oh, we don't eat lamb. Why not? Because we didn't have lamb. Well, maybe she ate it. Maybe you'll like it. You know, it's like one of those things. I think a lot of it has to do with familiarity. Well, my cousin one time was telling me that she went on a date with a preacher. And um, she took him to a place. And she ordered watermelon at one of these bougie cafes in Harlem now. 
and he like red like red rooster yeah, or something like, some like that. Red rooster watermelon. You know, you pay fifteen dollars yeah. for a piece of watermelon. It's unclear why this was a good idea. Spice, but it's got some like uh, Nigerian yeah, spice yeah. spice powder spice watermelon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then he just lost his mind. Black dude, he just could not handle the idea that she would eat watermelon where white people could see her. Well, that's that's very emblematic of the times, though, right? That's kind of that's the biggest central debate that I'm having with most of my friends that I would disaffectionately call centrist uh, <laughs> Democrats right now is a lot of them believe that it's more important that white people don't see you eat watermelon than it is that they might not serve watermelon at the restaurant that you go to. <laughs> is that does that make sense? Because it's like it's not one of these things is necessarily existential all the time. But it's a, it's a matter of perspective, even more than degree often, mm, right? Mm, mm, mm. It's like whether or not there is some assimilationist ideal we should be projecting. I don't know if it's, because I think a lot of us agree, especially if you look in the cent- you know, to the centrist part of the Democratic Party, there's a lot of people that are pushing this new segregationism as well. So it's hard to believe in both wanting to separate and and wanting to assimilate, no? So it's a very interesting dichotomy, the tension. Well, I think the respectability politics amongst those who we might call new segregationists are quite strong, right? Because, right, you want to separate in order to assimilate. It's a classic problem, right? It's like we can never be the same while we're living with you, but once we leave, then we can become, like, good middle-class people. You know, we can have the normative household... Mm, we can have the big cars. Because these aren't people who are like, oh, we don't want to get a new car this year. Right? I mean, they all want to get the new cars. They want to have the the 55-inch screens and watch the NFL. I mean, they want to do all these things. They still want the job at, like, Coca-Cola. It's just kind of like the Booker T. Washington thing, right? We can be together sometimes, but separate after work. I, saw, I was talking to my friend the other day. Uh, I graduated high school with him. Uh, you know, magnet school with Franklin, and he—he's uh, an attorney, and he's—he's he's what, he, what we call the new segregationist, pretty proudly, uh, but very, very proudly. Like he's this is not like a term I'm giving to him. I, he'd come on here and tell you this. So did he—he like he use the words new segregationist himself, or this is like? Yes, hundred percent. Like he said it. Well, I, I brought it up, and then he—he he just confirmed it. He didn't even fight the term at all. Because I, I was just asking, I was like, how did you arrive at this position? Because I see your—I see your Twitter posts, I see your Facebook posts. Um, and we went to similar type schools, um, and he was popular at Franklin, like, you know, and he, not like he had any problem being friends with white people, you know, I know he definitely was friendly with a few white girls, I'll say that much, so that definitely wasn't the biggest problem in life for him, um, but he went to Southern, and now he's just completely, like, against the idea that integration is possible. I mean, but does he work in a mixed office, or is it, like, social integration? So his main thing is he feels that social integration just doesn't work. That despite going to the schools with white kids, that he doesn't have relationships with any of them to this day. And so what was the real value? That maybe brain drain was real. That maybe there would have been more benefit to him and the community had he stayed with his black peers. Where despite being a big fish in a small pond, as he put it, they would have all mutually benefited each other. I mean, well, that is a good question, right? I mean, we do hear about these, like, amazing classes from our parents' generations at St. Aug and stuff like that. I mean, the rooms were filled with talent, right? 
Yeah, I guess, but everyone thinks they're smart until they meet people that are smart. So I don't know. Mm. Well, I guess to put it back to you, I guess. I mean, do you think it worked? Like, do you have white friends? Uh, a couple. From a high school? Uh, a couple. I actually, I, I met, had lunch with one of them today. He's white. Uh, so you think it worked? So <laughs> I mean, I, th- I don't know. I'm not saying it works. I'm saying of, you know, 12 years of schooling, I think I have of the white friends, uh, two, three. How many real friends do you still have after 12 years of schooling anyway? Yeah, from that whole group? I don't know, maybe eight? Mm-hmm. So that's not so bad, is it? Mm-hmm. Maybe ten? I don't know. I mean, I think... That's actually a good question. I mean, I think it's a big issue. It's like middle age. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not calling myself... I've still been calling myself mid-30s. Nafisa thinks that maybe I have to like upgrade that to late-30s, but I don't know if I'm comfortable with that yet. <laughs> Mid, let's call it mid late thirties. Mid late thirties. Yeah, compromise. Yeah. Second half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, second half, baby. Uh, you know, sometimes I try to round down to thirty five, but maybe that's just not as true as it once was. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, friendships are a big thing, right? I mean, how many friends do any of us really have at this day? Like maybe like ten, twelve. I talk to my friends all the time, but I have noticed that more and more of my friends are black. Like the ones I really talk yes. to. Correct. As time as time goes on, it just seems that more and more of those people are black. And it's a, it's probably mostly self-selection. But why? I guess is the question. Is, is there a way past it? Hmm. Well, I find... Is it worth finding they're out? They're black. Or they're married to black people. Or... Or... And I think for our, and I think for our parents, it's just a very interesting new experience, too, because our parents, literally, it's impossible for them to have these types of friends. So you think it's harder... You think it's easier for us than it was before? For them? Well, yeah. I mean, they, they literally could not, for the most part, unless, except in very rare circumstances, they didn't know... They, did, they definitely have, didn't have school peers if you grew up in the 50s and 60s. I guess my mom was invited to one. attend an integrated school her senior year of high school, but she didn't go. So I don't think she really lived with white people until she went, you know, up to Harvard. Or Radcliffe. Yeah, my, my, parents, my parents went to, both went to single-sex, all-black schools for high school. Uh, so this is a different world. I mean, I guess that's the thing, right? Shouldn't we have a lot of white friends? I mean, we've been in integrated schools our whole lives. White schools, predominantly. I've been in predominantly white schools my whole life. Well, that's where you and you differ, you know? I mean, that's why I might be... A little bit more fried chicken than my boy over here. <laughs> what school did you, which school did you go to? I don't remember. I went to Gene Gordon, Mac Main. Gene, Gene Gordon was majority white. <laughs> no, it was not. Well, yeah, I don't know. Was. You have bad memory. I'm a little confused about Gene Gordon, but Mac Main was definitely not majority <laughs> white. <laughs> okay, you can call, I'll give you Mac Main. I think Lusher was actually 50-50 when I was there for middle school, if you want to be precise. Mm. Lusher might have been more black than white when I was there, but... I think Mac May was a little bit blacker than than Lusher. I don't know about middle school. That's all I'll say about that. I guess it's 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 unclear. Yeah, I think think the experience, just to get back on track, I think the experience is a little... it's, It's different. Um, what we've experienced in relationship to our close friendships with white people and our proximity to them is different from our parents. We grew up around them our whole lives. 
And it was hard to see it until now. But we still didn't form these like long-lasting generational friendships that a lot of our white peers enjoy. It's, it's a stark difference of experience. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I feel like when I was in school, I had tons of white friends, right? But I think part of it is that... I think we were talking about a little bit before, right? Like, I don't know to what extent you feel like you have white friends that you would invest with or that, you know, invite you to join them on their business projects or invite you to their country clubs or their weddings. Or I feel like there's still in some ways a bit of a wall, right, between these two groups. And I wonder to what extent this, this adds in to the, to the wealth gap. Well, it probably makes a difference when it comes to lending, business formation, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Probably, probably influences later school admission. That was something people were talking about today at lunch when I was at the golf course about how hard it is to get into the same schools that we went to growing up. Mm. How there's like these long lines and if like you have a sibling, you're like, but, but there's basically like sibling... Uh, oh, there's like... Preference. Oh yeah, there's sibling preference. I don't know if you guys have legacy. But, I mean, I think those are some important topics. I mean, I think one of the things that we're going to try to do with in this pod, right, is... If we're trying to come up with like a state of where we are as, you know, black professionals right now, especially... I mean, people like me and you went to these like integrated schools. We didn't, I mean, we didn't grow up in like a segregated South, right? I mean, but to what extent these legacies still last on? I mean, going back to somebody like Chappelle, right? I mean, we were listening to him and I mean, he felt compelled to give this, to do this special, right? I mean, after he says that he watched um, the video of George Floyd. Mm. And I mean, he even named it eight minutes and 46 seconds, right? And it's like, I don't know if you feel this. I mean, sometimes as successful as I am, people come to me constantly, right? I mean, I'm in a mixed marriage uh, with an Asian community. And like, and like the other day I was talking to my one of my brothers-in-law, who's Arab, and he was coming to me. He was like, you know, you can't possibly be facing these problems, right, Alden? I mean... You don't want to defund the police, right? And it's true, right? I mean, right now, I I can't talk. I mean, I'm living in a very nice suburban community with, like, several acres of land and been hiding it out. Um, But but you get that constantly, right? Like, this idea that, you know, you guys must be an exception. You've done really well. You went to the great schools. But I guess the bigger question from someone like me is, who fucking cares? Like, even if, even if you were the exception, why does that make you have to go against the rule, right? And that's, that's the most important thing, I guess, the lesson to take, I guess, from assimilation, to just remember to stay true to your community. I don't know what that's not, with this, at the risk of sounding corny. It just... Uh, well, I think the idea isn't that, like, you go against the... I don't think people are so much asking you to make such a big statement, like, go against your community. I think the idea is that they believe that these experiences don't happen to you, right? So let's say... Basically, what I think he's trying to say is he's like, you know, I know some people are being stopped by the cops, right? It's like a classic move that they always pull. Mm, you know, some... We all know the African-American community has a hard time. 
you know, they've all read the statistics. I'm sure they all have some kind of like bad story, right? But they're looking at you and they're like, you don't seem to be like that. Mm. And so the assumption then is, is like, you probably never have any problems with the cops either, right? And well, a lot of this has to go back to, for, so for example, in New York, stop and frisk. One of the big defenses that they like to use for that is that it was using modern technology, that this technology was data-driven, that they weren't just going to be stopping random people because technology let them know where most of the calls came from. And 50% of the calls in the city came from 5% of the areas, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they would deploy the force where it was most needed and that all of these policies are data-driven. That's, that's what they love to say nowadays. It's data-driven. Don't worry, it's just data-driven. So we know we're stopping the right people because we're in the right area. But who gets to determine what's data driven? Who's taking this data? They don't. Data on who? Yeah, I mean, well, you know? we know that's another. I mean, that's a whole another issue, right? I mean, we know that most of the data they were using um, was kind of path dependent, right? So the people that got stopped the most had the most calls. People that are most policed have the most police incidences, therefore get <laughs> exactly. policed more. And then it becomes a self reinforcing cycle. But even I think I think what's made something like George Floyd or what makes somebody, you know, even like um, Dave Chappelle come out in these times, right, is that this is something that what I think makes it hard for people to understand is that it's something that cuts across the community, right? I mean, as an African American male or female, right, mm, you are approached by the police, or you are seen as a threat in ways that your white colleagues are not. I think across class backgrounds, across sort of gender backgrounds. And it is, it's something that's kind of inexplainable, right? I mean, the other day I was walking across the yard. I mean, sure, I was wearing a black uh, sweatshirt that said Lulumba on it, but whatever. <laughs> and, and this dude pops up, right? And he's like, where are you going? And I'm like, I'm walking on my in-law's property, right? And he's like, you could never be too careful. And he's like just looming above, above me. And you're like, oh. Did you ask him? And this is the real question. Did you feel that you had the right to ask him, well, who the fuck are you and why are you walking on my property too? <laughs> Definitely not. Where are you going? I was like, oh, snaps. I better defuse the situation immediately. Before. You never know. It's crazy. And I think to go back earlier, that's what I think Chappelle was trying to say by bringing up the idea that Laura Ingram would feel uh, entitled to tell... LeBron James that he should just shut up and dribble. I mean, did anybody tell Drew Brees recently that he should shut up and pass when he decided to talk about kneeling? Yes. I mean, people did, but yeah. he, feel, he felt entitled to say what he said. But the funny part is most of the people that did that again was people on the right, and they didn't do it when he said his first. They celebrated Drew when he said the tone deaf thing, but then when he actually woke up a little bit because he talked to his, his, his teammates, they were like, Shut up, Drew. You should just shut up and throw the ball. We don't need to hear so much from athletes. I was like, a week ago, you guys were like, yeah, Drew, that's what we want to hear. Blue Lives Matter. You know? So, I mean, that's it just becomes so self-serving and one-sided. Uh, it's It kind of undercuts the, the whole messaging on both sides. Mm. But I think also, I mean, police killings are, I mean, something that I think hits the community, hurts us viscerally, right? I mean, there, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. There. Like there was a whole year or two when I stopped driving in um in Philly because I was worried. I mean, I was I had just become director of Africana Studies at at Drexel, and it was just as you know the new wave of police shootings. I mean, we were in the wake of Trayvon Martin, 
um, Eric Gardner and all these people. And they were like, and I was going to a lot of the meetings with the community. And you could see that people are getting shot by the police all the time in places like Philly. And you could see the visceral anger when I would go to these town hall meetings. And it starts to affect you. And I think there's a way in which even just watching the videos constantly in some ways replays that trauma to you. And so I was just like, for a while, I was like, okay, I'm just going to take an Uber. And this was really selfish on my part because I was like, the police are probably going to shoot the Uber driver first and then I'll be able to like open my mouth and be like, hey, you know, I'm a professor at Drexel. Please don't shoot me. But there's this idea, right, that that you could just be shot, right? I mean, you can be shot before you can explain yourself. You could be shot, right? It doesn't matter exactly who you are. There's this way in which the police continue to see us as not real people. Or most, I mean, are as Americans, right? I mean, they're always qualifying our humanity, right? I mean, they're saying things like, oh, you're great because you went to such and such school. I remember when I was in Michigan, when I would get pulled over, I would be like, okay, I need to quickly give the cop not just my driver's license, but also my prep school ID. And then maybe he'll look at my prep school ID and be like, oh, okay, you're a good kid. I'll let you off right now, right? Or like what Dave Chappelle said, like the cop pulled him over, probably recognized that he was Dave Chappelle and was like, oh, okay, I'll let you go. And then the next day, he just murdered some dude in his small town in Ohio. And I feel like this is one of the main problems. I mean, this is... I think it's one of the things that's really hard to get other people to understand because I don't think a lot of, I mean, Native American people face, I mean, challenges I think as African Americans we can only begin to imagine, right? And Hispanic people maybe as well sometimes. But I think most communities, like, they don't understand. It's hard for them to understand, like, what it's like to have that presumption of guilt sort of tag to you at all times well i think it's particularly difficult to understand for a white american thanks for that by the way Alden. um because the system set up to protect them or traditionally has been set up to protect them from having to f- deal with minorities frankly at the end of the day um it, it's it was set up to reinforce segregation to keep them from having to deal with minorities much more so than their own criminals right uh policing wasn't for some reason a thing until after the civil war right the, the timing of it post-reconstruction it's like very strange like when it starts to become like such a like important part of society um and, and so i think we need to question these fundamentals and and the role that it still plays I, I kind of wish to some extent the argument now more than defund the police which we'll discuss a little bit more in a bit would be to disarm the police. I don't know why that's such a radical thing to say. I mean, I think when a lot of people are saying, or what, you know, when you push people, I think the one place that maybe so-called centrists and so-called leftist Democrats can agree on, right, or partially agree on, is that we need to demilitarize and decriminalize, right? So, I mean, we see this massive expansion of policing right after the Civil War, but but another expansion in the mid-70s as we have civil rights and the dismantlement of Jim Crow. And then again, and I think this is probably the, the, the crisis that's haunting the Democratic Party right now under our good friend Bill Clinton in the mid-90s, we see this third expansion of policing and, and criminalization, right? I mean, 
three strikes, mandatory sentencing, the expansion of the war on drugs. And I think what a lot of us are calling for is kind of an end on the war on drugs. And the beginning of the true militarization of the police. That's, that's yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was shocked when Ferguson happened. I was shocked. Sadly, I wasn't shocked that they killed a black um, teenager. But when I saw the pictures of the police, I was like, oh, snaps. I mean, when you saw them looking like it was like an occupying army across the, throughout the streets. But then they also, but the sad part is they didn't look like an army because they looked incompetent and they looked afraid. And to me, that's so much scarier in some ways than having the army out there that's at least trained with these things. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I think that was police. You know, you know, police receive eight hours of conflict resolution training. That's it, eight hours. It, it, it usually takes like twenty to hundred hours to unlock like difficult mode in a video game. It's just absurd. I mean, one of the things I think they should start doing. And the, the fun discussions is talk about just redirecting some of the money directly to training. Just not not even talking about taking away from them. Just being like, hey, you guys actually have to go through a much longer training period. Period. I don't think that's a an absurd requirement for someone with so much power. Yeah, like why do we think it's easier to be a police officer than to be, say, like a doctor or a professor or any of these things? I mean, to be... A peace officer, if we want to call it that, I mean, is a very complicated role, right? You should be able to be a mediator. You need to handle all sorts of difficult and ambiguous situations. Well, that's another side of it, too. Maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they should be more specialized. Maybe they shouldn't have to handle all of these different situations. Maybe we've given too many roles to the police and then simultaneously minimize their training. So you have them with pluripotent like responsibilities but zero training for any of them what are they supposed to do you have you know they're constantly having to adapt and they're unprepared mm. i mean i've often worried i mean one of the things that worries me a little bit about defund the police um even though at base i believe that maybe we need less policing and we need to spend less of a share of our city's budgets on policing but the one thing that scares me a little bit is that it reminds me a little bit of the rhetoric around like charter schools. You know, this idea that there's a few bad apples. If we only find the good apples, mm, we'll be able to sort everything out. I remember, I mean, we came of age sort of during the rise of Teach for America where they were like the only difference is a teacher in the classroom. It doesn't matter that there's no classroom. They can be in the park. So how that worked <laughs> yeah. out. I mean, now we don't even have a public school system, right? Um, Gone. And so I'm worried about that also in the attack on the unions, right? I mean, I recognize that being a police officer in some ways, after decades of austerity, is one of the only semi-decent middle-class jobs out there that a uh, you know, person with average skill level can be pushed into. Well, especially as we've, I think, discussed before, if you live in certain communities where there's not much of an economy at all, it might be one of the few jobs at all that even can provide that. Um, which, and then when you think about the fact that you then unionize all the police, it just creates this large force of people that feel that they're a special class of people that deserve this rate of, you know, return and all this respect for, I don't know. I mean, that's been what's kind of stark, right, in these recent protests, to see the police come out 
and base. I don't know if you saw this picture of the head of the New York Police Union out there screaming, "Respect us! We deserve to be respected!" And I was just like, "Whoa, whoa!" That guy just took a couple of Andro <laughs> shots and some fucking like nitro fuel, and we got there <laughs> like it jacked up. <laughs> And they had the, like the one scared black guy in like the fourth row yeah. that was like, yeah. He was like, I don't want to be here. Yeah. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here, but they told me I had to come. They were like, I'm the one that gets drinks sometimes and people suck. <laughs> I got to be out of here. What can I say? <laughs> I know it's fucked up, but we're, we're fucked up out here. And they were all wearing masks. Yeah, I mean, you know, you got appearances, man. Mm. Appearances. Mm. Messages is important. But I think it goes only to your point, right? I mean, you got these guys who feel like they're a special class of people uh, who want to be respected, but who are kind of scared. I mean, or who feel like we're trying to take something away from them. I think the other issue, too, that the big elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about is there is probably some hidden test when you apply to be a police officer and it's a political test and that's part of why we're seeing you've seen the numbers like something 80 something percent of police officers 88 or something of report voting for trump in the last election that's so that's very significant well police are his base right i mean the police the ice the dea the atf and who and these volunteers he got from the bureau of prisons in order to try to beat up protesters but you saw what's also stark and I think this goes back to what Dave Chappelle was actually really trying to say at the end. And we probably got made the BBC and NPR scared. It's, That's what I was telling my friend in New York, too. Why we're not having these problems in New Orleans right now. But go ahead. You saw like I how... They know what's going on. You happen. saw how General Mattis, uh, General Mealy, uh, I mean, all the old-time boys have become a... Bob Gates came out. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want to politicize the armed forces. You know what I mean? We don't, we don't necessarily want to use um, regular troops. And, and I think what Dave Chappelle is pointing at is that we've used a lot of boys. I mean, since Vietnam have gone abroad, done some, let's say, irregular activities over abroad and have a lot of skills. Skill gap, as you're pointing out, might be kind of high. I mean, you saw that Trump refused to call his boys to give a little marchy march on the south side of Chicago. He seems to be a little bit nervous. Mm. Well, they, they discussed having the Republican National Convention in New Orleans briefly. I mean, and I was like, have they, have they gone crazy? What's going on? It's, <laughs> like, are they, are they mad at themselves? It's, <laughs> it's, this is not sounding like a good idea. They seem to change their mind, right? They're going to what, Jacksonville now? Jacksonville, Florida. I mean... I was with you, Alton, and thinking that, you know, your boy Trump is a shoo-in. But Jacksonville Florida kind of feels like a retreat to me. From Charlotte to Jacksonville, feels like you're not too confident of the situation. I feel like Jacksonville's the biggest city in the South, though. Jacksonville's the biggest city in Florida, at least. I think it's the biggest city in the South. What kind of city is Jacksonville? Has anybody ever been to Jacksonville? <laughs> That's what everyone says. Every time I tell people this that, they have the same fucking reaction. The Nafisa. They're like, how is Jacksonville so big? I'm like, it's the biggest city, I think, both population and land area in the entire South. And everyone's like, no, it isn't. I'm like, I don't think it is, bro. <laughs> but Jacksonville is also huge, right? Isn't it some like vast expanse of space between Orlando and the Georgia border? 
Yeah, it's like all. It's, I think it has two coasts. I think it's like. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Shut up. Shut up. No, it doesn't. I'm joking. Mm. But it's big. <laughs> and I guess that is Trump's base, right? These dudes who live somewhere between suburbia and exurbia who work in these new professions, the post 9 11 professions, like the TSA, the ATF, the DEA, et cetera, et cetera. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. I, won, I wonder what the Jacksonville population growth looks like. I mean, maybe. But what about... I guess it depends on what you think the South is. Like, do you think Houston is in the South? Houston's Texas. Most people say South stops at Louisiana. And what about Atlanta? Yeah, of course Atlanta's South. Oh, I guess that's true. But Jacksonville might be bigger than Atlanta? It's definitely bigger than Atlanta. But what do you think is going to happen in the election? I mean, do you think the picking of Joe Biden can unite the Democratic Party and actually defeat Donald Trump? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) let's take a break and come back to this in a second.